You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, growing disciple-making leaders. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. And this is the third and final episode in a short series reflecting on John 21 and its lessons for leadership. And the sentence that I've put over this little series is faithful ministers lead people in obedience to Jesus. In the first episode, we thought about the person of Jesus and we saw how in John 21 that ministry for Peter being restored after the resurrection of Jesus began with a revelation of the risen Jesus as Lord the Lord who commands him and who calls him to follow, but also in his humility and servanthood in the character of the Lord Jesus as the model for leadership as Jesus cooks for his disciples. And how ministry proceeds through a loving relationship with Jesus three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. And ministry inspired by a great vision of Jesus, the very last verse of John's gospel about the the books that could be written about Jesus. Let your life and your ministry be another volume in the set, another story of Jesus. Let him be great. Let yourself become less as you follow his example of humble service. In the second episode, we thought about obedience. And we saw that Peter was uh, obedient step by step to the Lord during this period of waiting uh, between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and ultimately the coming of the Spirit and Pentecost. There will be times of waiting in ministry, times of preparation, times when we need to be patient. But, But we also need to listen for the Lord's voice in expected and unexpected places, whether it's his direct voice to us, whether it's through our co-workers and godly Christians, it was John who first recognized Jesus in this account, or whether it's through circumstances and strangers, Jesus appearing to the 12, or the the seven rather, who were in the boat on the uh, shore uh, as a stranger. And ministry follows Jesus into future fruitfulness and suffering. Now, in this episode, we're going to think about the people part of the sentence. Faithful ministers lead people in obedience to Jesus. And if you haven't already done so, I'd encourage you to pause uh, the podcast and read or listen to John 21. Remind yourself of the content of the passage I want to make sure that you see it's a reflection on that passage. Um, And and yes, I'm going to draw some ideas out from that. But it's important to let the Lord speak to you through his word and not simply through my words. So what is the nature of relationship with people in ministry and what does John 21 tell us about it? Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize that Peter is with the other disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a curious kind of chap, or at least I have my curious moments. And I, uh, I wonder, I mean, there were seven of them here. Where were the other four? And how come it is that we know the names of, of five of these seven, Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and then it says the sons of Zebedee. Well, we know that's James and John, but we don't even know who the other two were. Um, so there are two here that are not named. And... Uh, there are another four who aren't with them. That seems a bit strange. 
after the resurrection, or, or after the crucifixion rather, the disciples stuck together. And Luke gives us an interesting insight on resurrection day of two disciples, uh, one of them Cleopas and another. And, and of course, uh, we don't know if those were two who were amongst the, the 12 or if one of them was 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 one of the 12 uh, or whether they're simply a part of the wider network of disciples. But the Lord meets them when they're on the road to a place called Emmaus. And it seems as if he's corralling them back into Jerusalem to uh, to make sure that the church stays united. I think that's part of his purpose in meeting them in that way. He brings them back to the city. It's important that the church receives and the disciples receive the revelation of the risen Jesus and the commissioning of the risen Jesus together. And certainly when it comes to Matthew 28 and the what we call the Great Commission, Christ's commission to make disciples, it specifically tells us in verse 16 that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So we know that the 11 were in Galilee. We don't know whether these events on in Galilee came after that. I suggested in the last episode that it feels to me like they probably came before it, uh, but we really don't know. Um, so there's no point wondering where the other four were or who the two that aren't named were. Uh, we just simply have to accept that this is the way it was. So, But, but the point I, I'm trying to make is that Peter was in a community of people who were together waiting for Jesus. He wasn't the lone ranger. He wasn't out in isolation. He was with six other disciples. And in fact, it's Peter who says, I'm going fishing. And, and, and often, of course, it's Peter who's the leader amongst the 12 and uh, and and the, the one who sort of steps out first, who leads the way uh, for good or for ill, impetuously sometimes we feel. But Peter says, I'm going fishing. He doesn't say, let's go fishing. But the others say that they'll go too. They stick with him. Perhaps, of course, the other four were also in the room, but they didn't fancy fishing or had had no experience of, of fishing, although they would have been in boats with Jesus during his ministry. But anyway, they, they, they go together. So, so there is a community seeking Jesus. There's no lone ranger worker. There's no single person. Sometimes, unfortunately, John 21 has been interpreted through the lens of uh, the, the, the Roman Catholic idea of apostolic succession. And, and it's been seen as, as Peter being commissioned as the Pope, feed my sheep, the shepherd over the whole church. But, but there's no suggestion of that in the passage. The, the reason the Lord focuses on Peter specifically may have a connection to the fact that he's a leader amongst the twelve. But it also is to do with the fact that it was Peter who had denied Jesus three times and so needed a specific personal restoration. And when Peter writes about this in, in 1 Peter 5, he doesn't write about this episode, but he talks about himself as a fellow elder. He doesn't give any sense of being in a, in a hierarchy above the other elders of the church. And so Peter, yes, he may be a leader amongst the seven and amongst the eleven, but, but he's one of them. And when it comes to the crunch moment when when Jesus appears and they have the miraculous catch of fish, he listens to one of the others, John, who says, it's the Lord. And he responds to it. 
And there's also a bit of a tension in this. Peter said, I'm going fishing. And then the others have to sort of say, well, we'll come along. And Peter jumps out of the boat and leaves the others to drag the fish in. Although Peter's the one who goes back in and actually hauls the fish into the boat. So there is a bit of individualism here. There's a flexibility, perhaps, for an individual relationship with the Lord. Peter receives his specific commissioning. And at the end of the chapter, uh, the Lord tells him to focus on what it means for him to follow Jesus and not to worry about John and what path John will follow. So I'm not trying to say that there's no individual calling. There ought to be, and in a healthy community and in a healthy fellowship of, of servants of Christ, there will be space for, uh, for people to lead the way. There will be space for innovation. There will be a recognition of distinctive giftings. But there will also always be a desire for collegiality, for team. It's one of the great tragedies of Christian leadership at times that it doesn't seek teams and it defaults to hierarchies. It defaults, sadly, to lording it over others, even over other shepherds. And yet that's exactly what the Lord said not to do. He told the disciples, didn't he? The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over others, but you shouldn't be like this. If you want to be great, then be a servant of all. And when Peter writes to his fellow elders, 1 Peter 5, he uses that same language. He tells them not to lord it over others, but to set an example for them. And so if ministry seeks partnership with others and collegiality and team, and it always should seek that, it should always seek that out. If you find yourself in, a, in an individual situation, in a lone situation, then look for godly mentors. Look for godly advisors. We said it in the second episode, didn't we, that uh, when we listen for the voice of Jesus, we, we need to listen for what others who know the Lord are saying, just as Peter listened to John whenever John said it's the Lord. That's important. So seek that out. If you don't have a team, pray that the Lord will provide co-workers and look out for them. Look out for people who might come and join you or look out for people amongst uh, the, the, the flock, if you like, who, can, who you can develop up to be co-elders alongside you. Listen to others. So do lead in responsiveness to the voice of Jesus. Yes, that's important. But recognize that the voice of Jesus can come through any of the members of the church, not simply those who you would recognize as elders and perhaps even those whose voices you find a little bit irritating. The ones who seem to be quicker to see the faults than they are to see the good points. Well, they too can be conduits for the Lord's uh, uh, rebuke and the Lord's guidance. Ministry seeks partnership with others. It defaults to working in a team. It desires to do that. Why? Well, partly because the task is too great for any one person. Peter seems to have had particular physical strength. As I said, it is him who, who drags the fish into the net. 
whenever they finally, verse 11 says, when, when they finally bring the, the fish into the shore, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled and at a shore full of large fish, 153. But I suspect that he didn't do that even alone. Why do I say that? Because when they were out in sea, the, 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 the disciples together couldn't pull the fish in. Verse uh, 8 says, they dragged the net full of fish. They came in the boat and did that. But in verse 6, it had said they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity. In other words, we have to assume that without Peter, they couldn't haul it in. But with Peter, they could. And the work cannot be done by one person alone. God doesn't give us superheroes, omnicompetent people who can do everything on their own or individual people who are the sole fount of wisdom and insight into his heart and desires or the sole visionary. That idea of the sole visionary is a dangerous thing. And again, I'm not denying that the Lord gives us people who have particular vision and charisma and ability to call others to that vision. But even those people, and maybe especially those people, must be careful to surround themselves with others who have other gifts that complement that sensitivity, pastoral insight, wisdom, patience, humility. And of course, humility is not an option just for those who are less charismatic and less driven and less visionary. It's especially important for those who are visionary and charismatic in character and personality type. Ministry seeks partnership with others, but the ministry focuses on the task that Christ has given. And there are two tasks that I think we see in this passage. I referred to them last episode. There is the task of fishing, and that's a metaphor, of course, when Jesus called the, the 12, or at least those who were fishermen, uh, he told them in Luke 5 that he would make them into fishers of men, evangelizing, sharing the gospel, hauling in the nets. And then there's the ministry of tending the sheep. So as I've said already, that that's a, a different kind of dynamic, isn't it? And I think sometimes ministry falls into a pitfall of, of being only one or other of those. There are the passionate evangelists, the dynamic characters who want to get out and reach everybody and cast the net out as wide as possible and haul in as many fish as possible. 153. Lots of speculation over the centuries as to what that number means. Uh, probably best to avoid all of that, but simply to say... It's a big number and they're big fish. Wow, wonderful. And we ought to pray for fruitfulness in evangelism. We ought to rejoice when we see it. Of course, it's not guaranteed, is it? We shouldn't read this and say, well, if we simply obey the Lord the way the 12 did and cast the net down on the right hand side or worse still, we start to think actually we can come up with the best technique and we'll buy the latest book or program or resource that will give us that hidden insight like modern day Gnostics seeking for this hidden knowledge, the clue and the secret. That's not what this is telling us. Yes, there is the obedience to the Lord. But being obedient to the Lord won't always mean dramatic results. That's not the point. 
you have to look at the whole of even the the accounts in Acts where you have times of dramatic increases in number and then you have times of contexts and places where Paul and his team go to, for example, where the response is really very small and limited or slow. But there is a task of evangelism, isn't there, of casting the net out, and we mustn't lose sight of that. In our leadership, in our churches, we mustn't get complacent and think that we're only there to maintain what we already have. To Sometimes I think that we turn ourselves into palliative care pastors. You know, we, we think our job is just to give the church as painless a death as it can have. No, we need that dynamism of evangelism, but also and the core of what Peter is called to is not, it seems, primarily that evangelistic task. And as we read into Acts, we don't see Peter doing a lot of evangelism when he does go to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10. And it, it is a very significant moment in the growth of the church and the development of the church. It is an evangelistic moment, if you like, as the household of Cornelius come to faith and are included within the church. And Peter is the agent, but it almost happens by accident in a way. Peter just goes along and, 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 and the spirit is already at work. And of course, Cornelius already knows a lot of truths about God. Um, and so Peter opens his mouth. Acts 10, 34 say, says, and, and says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. You yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, he says, verse 37. And he, he does share the gospel with them. But verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Uh, yes, the gospel has to come, and the, the Spirit comes as the gospel is heard and believed. These are inseparable, and Peter is the agent who brings the gospel. But, but, but <laughs> you get this sense in which it's kind of, well, it could have been anybody who shared this truth. I mean, Peter just happens to be the one the Lord has used and appointed, and it has to be Peter as a representative of the Twelve to make it clear so that he can testify at the Council of Jerusalem that, of what God had done amongst the Gentiles. That was important. But my point is that Peter is not primarily an evangelist, and, and it certainly wasn't his technique as an evangelist that led to results. It was the powerful work of the Spirit as the gospel was truly proclaimed. Although isn't that always the pattern of conversion? And could it be that in evangelicalism we put far too much emphasis on gifting and technique even in evangelism. But it seems that Peter's primary role is not evangelism. It's 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 Stephen and and, and um, Philip rather. Stephen in, in his martyrdom, I suppose, is an evangelist, but Philip in his mission to Samaria and Paul in his mission to the Gentiles, who will be primarily fruitful in evangelism in Acts. Peter's role will be primarily as a shepherd of the sheep. And this is vitally important too. And if some of us neglect evangelism and the zeal of casting out the net, because we're too focused on, on uh, maintaining and caring for those we already have, on the flip side, perhaps some neglect the care of those they have because of the passion for evangelism. So they're always reaching out to new people, the new newcomers to the church feel really welcome, but the people who've been coming for a while feel tired and jaded. 
the 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 there are always new programs being developed and the people who've been there for a while simply feel like they're fuel for the fire of the vision of the pastor we've got to be really careful we've got to make sure that we integrate evangelism reaching out casting the net with tender care for the sheep Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then care for my sheep. The two are inseparable, aren't they? If we love Jesus, we'll love his sheep. If we love Jesus, we'll learn from him to be a good shepherd. John 10, as he described himself as the good shepherd. If we love Jesus, we will lay down our life for his sheep. If we love Jesus, we'll see the people who he loves as people in need of love, in need of compassion. We will see the people that are brought to us in the church that have been entrusted to our care as people who, who need an example of godliness, who need to be taught, who need to be protected from the false doctrines and beliefs that surround them and that circulate on the internet and in, in books and in churches. We'll recognize how Satan will mislead them through the values of culture. We'll seek to always bring the gospel before them, to bring Christ to them. And we will do it all, as again, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, let me read it to you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Again, I think in leadership talk, there is far too much talk of vision. The leader has to have a vision and has to lead people to that vision. But the primary focus of scripture is that the emphasis is on Jesus. There is a vision, but it's a vision of him and his glory and of the gospel. And the leader sets an example of what it means to be becoming like Jesus, to be serving him, to be following him. The leader doesn't lord it over people. He doesn't use them as a way to achieve his vision, even if he believes that vision comes from the Lord. He doesn't control their lives. He doesn't dictate to them. He doesn't judge them because they're not committed enough to his vision or to his church or to this church or her vision or her church. The leader serves. The shepherd cares. The shepherd loves the sheep. The shepherd lays down his or her life for the sheep. The shepherd sets an example and the shepherd is accountable to the chief shepherd Christ. So let's integrate in our ministry the casting of nets and the caring for the sheep. Maybe that will be different people. This is what where team becomes such a beautiful thing, doesn't it? Partnership as we use our diverse gifts. But let's never neglect, let's never forget, let's never leave those who are already here untended, uncared for. Let's guide them, let's lead them, let's not control or manipulate them. Let us not make our desire to see more people come to faith, the desire for the gospel to spread, to dominate the need for a loving community where people can come and simply feel secure and safe and grow 
and have the gospel applied to their need and where some of them will never be strong enough to go out and be dynamic leaders, where some of them will never really have a contribution to bring other than simply being there because their needs are complex and their abilities are limited. Do you love the sheep in your care? Do you tend them? And as we close the final challenge, verses 20 to 24, if there is a pitfall of leadership that I think is under addressed, it is this comparison and competition. At some point, I'd like to write more about that. Uh, perhaps I'll comment on that in a blog article at some point uh, or a podcast episode for living leadership. But Peter even after the Lord has said, follow me, looks at John and says, well, what about him? You've told me that I'm going to have to die. What about him? And the Lord says, well, if I want him to stay alive, what, what does that matter to you? You follow me. And I'm going to suggest to you that I think, and I'm right in saying this, that this will be the greatest pitfall that will affect you or any of us as a leader. As we seek to be faithful ministers of Christ, we must look for partners, but we must not measure ourselves by comparison with others. We don't make ourselves the judge of others' faithful service. That's where leadership goes wrong and we start to think we are the ones who can tell other people how they ought to serve the Lord and whether they're doing a good job at it or not. No, they're his servant. They'll stand or fall to him. We should advise them. Rebuke them where we see sin, yes, of course. Encourage them where we see discouragement. But we have to respect their conscience before the Lord if they have a different vision and a different emphasis than we do. Our job is not to corral them into fulfilling our vision, but, into, but to lead them into being obedient to Christ because faithful ministers lead people in obedience to Christ. They themselves are obedient to him, and they lead others to be obedient to his voice. And that's what our teaching should major on. So stop trying to control others, but stop comparing yourself with others and with the success and the visibility and the name that they have. Be content to be who God has called you to be. Serve him faithfully where he has placed you. And rejoice in the contributions that others bring. Avoid the pitfall of comparison and of competition, which is unworthy of the kingdom. We are not in competition with the church down the road or with the other elder in our context or with the other denomination. We are servants of Christ. Ministry, faithful ministry, seeks partnership with others it feeds and tends the sheep under Christ and it avoids the pitfalls of comparison and competition. Faithful ministers lead people in obedience to Jesus. Let me pray for you as we finish this series. Father, I thank you for those who have listened and we pray that you will continue your work in our hearts, that you will make us into faithful ministers who lead people in obedience to Jesus. Help us, Father, to love the people that you've given into our care. Help us to have both 
uh, a passion for evangelism and a commitment to care for the flock. Help us to recognize the diversity of gifts and of personalities that you've given us in order to, to achieve both of these things, to do both of these things faithfully. Help us not to not to lord it over others. Keep us humble, Father. Help us to be their servants and an example to them. Give us the courage to rebuke sin where we find it, to challenge the wrong ideas in our culture and the false teaching that goes around, but not to bind people to obedience to us and to our vision, but to set an example to them of obedience to the voice of Christ. And as we do this, Father, save us from the sins of competition and comparison. Help us to look at Christ, to be caught up with a vision of him, so that our lives and our ministries become volumes in the great account of the greatness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Make it so for his glory and throughout our lives. In his name we this pray. episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give, or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.